Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Ready or not. Ready or not. Here I come. You cannot. The Fugees, you guys, you remember that? Remember the Fugees? Oh, man. I remember a story. Uh, you want to know how, how far back this story goes? I was sitting in Circuit City. That's how far back this story goes. Sitting in Circuit City. They had this room, like a plexiglass room in the middle of the store with speakers and stuff inside so you could go in and crank it up and see how that, you know, awesome their speakers were. Um, why did I start telling you this story? Oh, because the Fugees. The Fugees came on. And I remember sitting there in that chair listening to that song. I don't know, man. I must have been a teenager, a young teenager, just rocking out to the Fugees. Uh, really good stuff. Uh, Lauren Hill, I'm pretty sure, is publicly racist. Um, I hope I'm not speaking out of school. I remember hearing that about her, about Charles Barkley, and about Tommy Hilfiger when I was growing up. How much of that is uh, is uh, conspiracy theory? Um, I don't know. I'm just telling you what I heard when I was 12. Enough of that. What am I doing today? Something a little different. Um, but you know what? Before I get into it, let me say something about the podcast that uh, Kyle did on Sunday. I was out of town for most of it, wasn't expecting to be back in time, and Kyle brought his, his mom and brother in and was doing that uh, that conversation. Uh, if you guys didn't hear it, you can go back and listen to it. I'm sorry I missed it, uh, honestly. Um, I don't know how much I would have been involved in the political part of the conversation, although some, I'm sure, I was really particularly interested in jumping in when we started talking about religion. Surprise, surprise. But I would have loved to have asked Melissa a bunch of questions and try to figure out um, kind of where she's coming from and see if she could put words to it that uh, that makes sense. Sometimes people don't think about it, at least not the same way, until they formulate those ideas and speak them out loud. Part of the reason why I do the podcast is exactly for that. Uh, but enough of that. Um, I will I will have Melissa back on and we'll do we'll do another one. Um, I, I would like to have been there and asked some questions. So we'll do that. That'll be fun. Uh, Melissa reminds me of my mom in that way, kind of a conservative religious person. And my ideas about religion are a little bit out there, as you guys know, but I'm pretty convinced of the stuff that I say. I'm pretty, pretty convinced by it. I'm open-minded. I'm, I'm willing to be corrected if, if it's necessary, but I was pretty convinced at the moment, but it would be interesting to ask questions to someone like Melissa or my mom and try to figure out where the resistance comes from. You know, like the psychedelic artwork that's up on the wall that, uh, that Melissa was like, uh-uh, nope, I don't understand it, I don't like it. it you know, it w- would have been nice to dive into that a little bit and figure out where that's coming from. And, you know, the fear, I think there's some fear involved there, and I, I'm just curious about that. 
But enough of this. Uh, today's episode is not about any of this stuff, and it's a little bit of, of a different episode for me. I don't have a whole lot prepared for it, but there's been something on my mind recently. It's come up a few times, so I'm just going to try to talk about it. Um, you guys let me know what you think. All right, so I'm going to start this one by telling you a story about this English class I had in college. It was probably like the first quarter or the second quarter I was in college. And I'm taking a an English class, you know. F- to me, it felt a lot like high school. You know, the kids there were basically high school age. It was a prereq class, you know. It wasn't like, it was an English class, guys. We're all 18 years old. We speak English. We write English. We're, you know, we're pretty good at it at that point. But you have to do it anyway in, in, in the beginning of college. So there I am. At some point, I don't remember the details, but at some point, we start having a conversation in class about gender roles, gender roles. Um, What I mean is the types of work or the types of responsibilities that we as a culture believe to be a woman's job or a man's job, something like that. Um, So I'm already, I'm already stepping on dangerous waters, but back in like, you know, 2000 and whatever, four or five or three or something, I don't know when this was, something like that, it was a whole different world. I'm not saying that feminism didn't exist, of course it existed, it existed since the 60s, and it had an impact on college even then, but it was a completely different world we were living in, one in which I could say something controversial, which I did, and had a conversation with 30 kids and a teacher, which I did, and was mostly civil. Um, I don't think that this conversation could happen today. And in fact, if, if it did happen, I probably would have been in trouble as a student for breaking some code of conduct. The teacher probably would have been in trouble as well for allowing that conversation to take place and make a bunch of people feel unsafe, let's say. Um, it's pretty staggering to me, the difference in the world, you know, in, in, in 20 years, less than 20 years. It's unbelievable to me. In any case, the story goes something like this. I'm in class talking about gender roles, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but something in defense of traditional gender roles, something in defense of the idea that there's certain work, let's say, that's best suited for women and certain work that's best suited for men. I'm not saying that's true 100% of the time, but in general and on average, that is the case. I got pushback, as you can imagine, from most of the women in the class. And it went something like this. It was like, how could you say something like that? Um, Don't you think that women deserve all the same opportunities that men have? Um, Don't you think you're pigeonholing women by saying that they have certain jobs and responsibilities that, you know, the the family or the society is going to offload onto that particular group. Don't you think that's unfair? They don't get to make the choice. They just get it thrust upon them. And, and by the way, while, while the men get to go off and be the CEOs and the engineers and, and, you know, whatever, whatever they thought was the sexy job at the time and make all the money and get all the social prestige and, uh, you know, have that high, that high level position that, be the envy of their peers, that kind of thing. Why should the men get to do that? And the women are stuck at home cooking barefoot and pregnant, raising the kids, something like that. And even back then, that was stunning to me. Because because I look at the job that 
the women in my family have done. My memories of how I grew up and who did what and what was involved. And more importantly, how significant the people in my household and in my family seemed to me. And if you ask me who was more important in, in the household to me, my mother or my father, I would say my mother 100% of the time. If, if you would have asked me the same question, you know, about any other member of my family and any of those matriarchs, like my grandma, a couple of my grandmas or my great grandma that I was lucky enough to have alive till I was like 10 years old, I would have pointed at them. Not at a grandpa, not at an uncle, not at my dad. I would have pointed at them. So you, you have to understand, I'm sitting there in college thinking to myself that the women's roles are by far the most significant in the house. They're the most significant in the society. Without them, we would be lost. And I have all of these women sitting in class around me saying, why would you belittle me? by saying those are those are my job. And I'm like, wait a minute. These are the most important jobs. These are the most important responsibilities. These are the things that make the women in my life the most important and significant creatures, right? And yet you're sitting there and telling me that you're insulted by it. And when I was young, I didn't really have the words to, to describe my confusion. Um, I just kind of looked at them funny and I said, you know, it seems to me like uh, women should be respected and honored um, above pretty much any, anybody else for the things that they do. Um, and it was, I just could not, could not reconcile that with the women in the classroom. They were, they were overwhelmed by this spirit that I don't know where it came from, but I have a hard time believing it came from their household. Like if these other kids that were my age living in the same city, you know, in public coming, coming from public school, basically these people would have had, I imagine a similar life to me. Most of them, two parent households, most of them middle-class, most of them, you know, graduated high school, all of them just like me. So their household lives, their family lives, I would imagine be very much like mine. So how is it that these girls sitting in class that probably grew up much like me, um, would say, that they were offended by the, the proposition that these quote-unquote male jobs and responsibilities shouldn't, you know, shouldn't fall on women or shouldn't be available to women or something like that. Uh, it was just very, very strange and difficult. And I think where I want to go with this is to say that when I was in college and I had that experience, I was also learning all kinds of stuff. And I told you guys about a couple classes that I've had already that were impactful that I remember. Um, and I did, I did lots that had to do with economics and uh, finance and accounting and all that sort of thing. And economics is interesting. And it plays into this conversation in a way that it's going to sound obvious when I bring it up, but you're, you're probably scratching your head wondering where I'm going with this right now. It has something to do with this. I w it was explained you know, to me in, you know, economics that cultures develop and so I should say societies develop and the economic systems of those societies are all different and they change as, as they evolve and develop. And one of the things that happens is naturally, by the way, is a division of labor. See where I'm going with this? This is a division of labor. It's like, it's like you can imagine, um, 
Henry Ford in the assembly line. And you've got certain people that are doing certain tasks and they only do the certain tasks. Now you could never ask one of those people that are doing one task, how do you build the car? They would say, I don't have any fucking idea. I just put the nut on the bolt. I put the nut on the bolt and I move along, right? So not one of those people could ever tell you how to make a car, but every single one of those individuals, now that we've divided the labor, it's not one guy spending a year building a car. It's a thousand people spending an hour building a car. And so it's much more efficient because you have a division of labor and you have something that comes about that it's, it's basically it's specialization. You've got people who get really good at doing, you know, certain things. There's also a concept called economies of scale in, in economics. And it comes up like this. It's like if in the United States we have a wealthy country, uh, we have a lot of people make a lot of money, a high income earners. In, you know, if you compare the United States to the world, you can't, there's certain things you can't make in the United States. Um, at least you can't and sell them for the price that we go and buy them at Walmart for. That's why everything's made in China or Bangladesh or India or in Nicaragua or something like that. Because if you're going to buy textiles or you're going to buy some manufactured product, it's going to be way cheaper to buy it from a country who's positioned really well to make that product. You know, if you have a place that grows uh, a lot of cotton and, and, you know, they can make a lot of textiles, it's probably a good place to build a factory to make some fucking linens, right? Probably a good spot for that. Um, and, it, and it would be easier to do that in, let's say, Mexico in a place where, you know, cotton, cotton fields all around you and labor is very cheap. Rather than building that factory in Chicago and paying everyone $25 an hour to, to do a job that doesn't require a college education and then turn around and sell, sell me a shirt that would cost me, you know, $16 at Marshall's that now I have to pay, you know, 150 bucks for because it was made here in America. That's called economies of scale. Okay, you allow the, the groups that can do something the best to do that thing and don't compete with them. If you can't, if you can't compete with them, don't. Use your time doing something that you can do well, that you can compete you know, with in the marketplace. It's all about doing what you're good at or doing what you're positioned to do well. Does that make sense? So economies develop that way. And it, it's not like a new... You know, I talked about Henry Ford, but it's not like this is a new thing. You can go all the way back to the Stone Age and imagine cavemen, and we're having the same conversation. So imagine you've got a small tribe of people living in the Stone Age, very primitive. You got a mother, you got a father, you got a grandmother, grandfather, you got kids, maybe you got some aunts and uncles that and some cousins. And you that's what that's what you're doing. You're living in this little group. It turns out food is hard to come by in that situation. So some of those people are going to be hunting and some of those people are going to be gathering and it's the same conversation. If you don't have a division of labor, then what happens? You got people out there hunting and gathering at the same time. You don't get as much uh, hunting done. You don't get as much gathering done because nobody's as good as you would be if you were just a hunter or just a gatherer, right? So what did they do? They said, well, let's be pragmatic. Let's take a look at, at what we have to work with. What do we have? We have three large men in the group that have the most upper body strength. They ha they're the fastest on their feet. They have the most practice with weapons. They're, they're ideally positioned to be the hunters. 
we have these three women, let's say, that don't have those same biological characteristics, but are capable and just as capable in every other way. So let, let's go ahead and let them specialize in the things that, that, that they wouldn't be as good at. So rather than having them do the hunting, let's have them do the gathering and whatever else, you know, that, that they could do. And so you divide up the labor and what you end up with is much more efficient and much more smart strategies for gathering and for hunting because you have allowed for specialization. Then the whole family gets to eat better. The whole family survives. And from an evolutionary perspective, what does that mean? It means the families that did, that figured out a division of labor was going to offer them a better way of surviving. Those families survived and the ones that didn't died out. So what we end up having is a division of labor in the family and the family unit that, that we really couldn't avoid. If you were smart enough to figure out that was more efficient and that was going to let you survive, then guess what? You would be dumb, 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 let me say, dumb to not do it. You divide up the labor. You divide up the labor along biological lines by asking yourself, who is best equipped to do this job? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Are you a man? Or are you a woman? The Stone Age people didn't give a shit about that. They were s- surviving. They were doing nothing but surviving, living hand to mouth, you know, running from predators, right? Really risky way of living, a really, really risky time to live. And what did they decide? They decided that men on average, by and large, were better equipped biologically to do these certain types of jobs, the dangerous jobs, the jobs that require a lot of, you know, muscle work, right? Um, That kind of thing. They became the hunters. They're also the warriors. They're the ones that are protecting the, the family and the village. Why? Not because it's a man's job, but because Biologically, men are better equipped to deal with that sort of thing. Can you imagine if an army of men comes into your village and you send an army of women out to defend them? What's going to happen? By and large. By and large, the men are going to be bigger and stronger. So what's going to happen? Probably nothing good. All, everything else being equal. It's not a sexist idea at all. It's a pragmatic idea. It's looking at what we have to work with and making a decision about, about what would be the most efficient way of surviving. And whatever works gets passed on to the next generation. And guess what, guys? The, the division of labor has been passed on every generation from the Stone Age to the present. It's still here with us. We still have a division of labor. Okay. So having a division of labor frees up time to do other things. And what those other things are, you know, beyond survival are things like like leisure, like you know, having a minute to relax, having, having an opportunity to sleep a little better, um, whatever it might be. But also the development of culture. You know, what's involved in culture? I mean, language, technology of all kinds, things that will help us in, in, to improve the way we live. So by having a division of labor, that frees up the time we need to have to develop culture, you know, figure out better weapons, figure out better ways of starting a fire, figuring out some new material that can be used for this or for that, figuring out how to, how to sew baskets, figuring out how to make pottery, all of the things that allow us to live even better, we can do now because we have a division of labor. You see what I mean? And then, of course, you got people like primarily the women in tribal societies that are figuring out how to do all that stuff. 
They're the ones sowing the baskets. They're the ones figuring out what food is edible and what's poisonous. They're the ones figuring out what mushrooms will make you trip balls and which ones go really good in a soup. They're the ones that are figuring out how to make, um, you know, vases and, and, and bake those, uh, you know, the, the, the clay. And they're the ones that have the time to do all of that. I'm not saying the men didn't contribute. They did. But whilst those motherfuckers were out hunting for a week or two weeks at a time, the women are at home figuring that stuff out and teaching it to the children. Can you imagine a more important job than that? Can you imagine what would happen without it? I mean, what? We're going to not teach the kids all these new skills so they have to invent everything else for themselves? And in every generation that comes after is going to be a question mark as to whether it's going to be an improvement or a step backwards or something right along the same lines. I mean, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. If we're diminishing the importance of the women's roles, going back even into the very beginning of tribal society. And again, I, I see something like that. It seems pretty obvious to me. I remember sitting in class, hearing the girls hearing the girls tell me how terrible I was and how, how disrespectful it was and how belittling it was for me to suggest that a division of labor between men and women um, is significant, necessary, and in fact the contributions of women, uh, in, in my opinion, and we'll talk about it soon, are vastly greater than the sort of standard traditional contributions of men to, to the family and culture. Um, and I'm not a feminist and I'm not a man basher. I'm just telling you how I see it. So here's the question. Why did the women in my college class believe that traditional women's roles are less valuable or less necessary than men's? Why? Why? Would those, would those women in my college class tell me that gathering uh, and hunting are equally important? Or would they tell me that the women are allowed, aren't allowed to hunt? And that's the prestigious thing. When the, when the hunters come back with a deer and the, whole, and the whole village gets meat for the first time in a month, and there are celebrities you can imagine. Everyone would be praising them and so happy that they went out and did this dangerous thing and came back successful. But the women don't ever get to feel that. So would, would, my, would these girls in my college class say, no, the women should be allowed to hunt too because they're being robbed of the prestige of this thing that the men get? And I just don't know. Like, where is it coming from? It seems to me that traditional roles are assigned pragmatically or naturally based upon the, based upon the biological characteristics of the members of the group that lend to a particular set of tasks. I mean, it's not controversial if we're talking about individual to individual. You know, if you said, hey, this guy's got the best eyesight in the whole tribe, and therefore he's the he's got the best aim. Well, guess what? That motherfucker's hunter number one. I don't care, I don't care what he wants to do. He's hunter number one. That's where he's gonna be the most valuable to the society. We'd all agree with that. But suddenly if there's five or six people in that group and two of them are women and the rest of them are men, now now it's a controversial conversation. Why? Why? 
is the introduction of gender or sex in, into this situation messing everything up. It's playing with the value, the perception of the value of what they're bringing to the table. And it doesn't come from the Stone Age, you know? Those, those people in that position, they thought that the hunters were extremely important and valuable. And the gatherers were extremely important and valuable. And the men and women had all sorts of vital roles to play in the, in the family and in the society, and they were indispensable. You, you couldn't go without either of them. Men and women were equally important. Because without one or the other, you don't live as well. You don't eat as well. You don't survive as well. You don't compete as well. We need it. We need it all. So it seems to me that it's not gender roles themselves that are culturally conditioned. kind of seems like that comes out of necessity of what it's like to be a human being and what's it like to live in, you know, to survive in the world, you know, at, at different times, with, with different resources, different technologies. That's what it seems like to me. So these girls in my college classroom who said women's roles were not valuable, that they were demeaning to be, to be thrust on them like that. It seems to me that it's not the roles themselves that have that value judgment. It's the, it's the, it's the attitude it's our response culturally to those roles that's culturally conditioned. It's not the fact that gathering is more suited to women and hunting is more suiting, suited to men that is controversial. It's the idea that a woman would be offended that she has to gather instead of hunt, or a man would be offended that he has to hunt instead of gather. That is the weird thing. Where's the offense coming from? It's like the person is convinced that they're not, they're, not, they're not doing everything they can. They're not getting everything they can. They're not contributing everything they can. They're getting, sh they're getting the short end of the stick somehow because they're contributing in a particular way and other people are contributing in a different way. It's, it's the culture that says whether that's valuable or not. And it kind of plants that in the head of our children. That's, that's what happened in this college classroom. It was a bunch of women... Again, coming from the same socioeconomic background in the same city at the same time and the same age as me, likely living a very similar life with similar family roles and gender roles and responsibilities as me. And they have mothers and grandmothers and aunts that they respect deeply and do all of these important things. And when you say to them, you should do what your grandmother and your mother and your aunts and uncles did, all the uh, aunts rather, what they did that you respect them for so greatly, we want you to we want you to do those things as well. Oh, you're offended by that. But wait a minute, you just you just told me how much you love and respect and how meaningful those women are in your life. So why don't you want to be like them? Okay, maybe maybe you do, maybe you don't. But why would you say that their contributions are less valuable, even if you don't want to walk in those same footsteps? See, you wouldn't unless somebody told you to. Unless news and popular culture and celebrities and, you know, maybe the, maybe the women in your life told you that. Okay. So what do I mean by this? Let's get controversial for a minute. Let's get a little controversial, guys. Let me, let me, let me talk about women's roles, women's jobs. Let's talk about that. What, is, what, what do women do? Well, they do some things, right? They raise children. They seem to have a bigger role raising children than men do, by and large. 
Um, and that can mean a lot of things. I mean, it, it differs from culture to culture, but, but I think that women obviously carry the children and, um, in a, in a 1950s perspective, you know, when they're not working, let's say they're at home with the children way more than, than, than the man would be. So it seems to me that just by nature of the fact that they're kind of, kind of connected at the breast, for lack of a better word, for a certain number of months or years, and then they're going to be more involved in the day-to-day lives of the child while the men are out out doing whatever it is they're doing, that that's going to make the raising of the children fall, um, you know, much more firmly in the lap of the women than the men. And then I have to ask, raising children, how valuable is that, do you think? What kind of value do you put on raising the children? Making sure that another another generation comes after us that doesn't get sick and die, that gets fed well, that survives, that learns all the skills that they need to learn to to do better. Who's doing most of that? The women are. What kind of value do you place on that? Shouldn't it be a very fucking big one? Raising the children? I mean, if a woman doesn't do that job well... The children die or they grow up, you know, not so healthy or not so well-developed or, you know, they're not competent or they're not, you know, whatever it is, they're missing something hugely important if they don't have that. So when I say to these girls in college, let's say, that raising children is an important, it's a very important role and it's one that falls more firmly on the laps of the women than the men. And they say to me, how dare you? Because I'm insulted that you would suggest that a woman has to raise the kid. No, I'm not suggesting that. It's, it's perfectly possible for a man to raise a kid. But it's not ideal for a man to raise a kid by himself. It's not ideal for a woman to raise a kid by themselves. Uh, it's, you know, it's certainly better to, to have more help and more influences and, and, and all of that stuff going on. But what about Specialization. What about the fact that women have been raising children for 100,000 years? They're goddamn good at it. What about that? The division of labor. Doesn't that make women better equipped to be doing that job than men, by and large? Not in every situation, but by and large. That's how it becomes a part of, of, that's how it becomes traditional to begin with. Because it works, and it keeps working, and we keep doing it. That's how it becomes traditional to begin with. And raising children goes far beyond giving birth and nursing. It goes far beyond. It's teaching. So much has to do with teaching. Teaching life skills. Te- teaching kids language. Keep it, teaching them morality. Telling them the stories that, that, that have the information that they're going to have to rely on, you know, as they age and mature and, and understand the meaning of those, of those myths. And, you know, it's culture that the women are teaching and passing along to the, to the kids. They're booting them up. The women are booting them up. Okay, gathering. Gathering we talked about. You know, if the men are off hunting, because they're the ones, again, biologically best equipped to do that job, the women are at home, what, twiddling their thumbs? No. They're, 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 they're doing essential shit. They're gathering as well. And it's not just going around picking berries from the edge of the village. It's not about, you know, collecting nuts off the ground and half-rotten apples with bees flying around. That's not what gathering is. Gathering is foraging, right? It's teaching. 
It's not just supplying the family and tribe with food. It's not just helping the tribe survive the lean times in between hunt successful hunts, right? Right? It's teaching the children what things are edible, what things are poisonous, what things are medicinal. It's planning, teaching the next generation how to plan so that they don't starve. It's a whole lot. There's a lot of mystery and a lot of different things out there in nature. And the women were the experts. I mean, the men were too, but the women were teaching that stuff to the children. How about cooking? Women do the cooking, mostly, in my household. My household, my dad did, um, he did his own spaghetti, which was very different from my mom's. And he did uh, fried potatoes and sausage, which I never liked because he put peppers and onions. And when I was little, I was picky and didn't ever want to eat it. But that's what my dad made. And if he ever, and if he ever brought home like a deer or turkey, because he was a hunter, um, he would cook that stuff. All the, all of the other cooking was done by my mom. So let's talk about cooking for a second. If we don't cook, we don't eat, we starve, we die. How important is that? It's pretty fucking important, right? You ever spend much time with a bad cook, and then go back to a decent cook or a good cook? You ever go to a fancy restaurant and have food you never fucking knew could taste that way? Cooking is no small thing. And to become good at it is no small thing. And if you ask somebody what the value is for gathering, for raising children, or for cooking, the right answer is not to be insulted. Those are very important tasks. We couldn't live without them. So cooking does sustain the family. It also allows, uh, allows the men to pursue their, their hunting. So it frees up them to go out away from, you know, their families uh, and, and to do other things. It's a division of labor. All right, so we talked about raising the children, but I want to point out a couple things that, that are obvious, but this kind of comes from, a, comes from Jordan Peterson quite a lot, actually, but it's the idea of carrying children and giving birth. You know, it's like, the transgender debate aside, women are the ones that give birth. Period. That's not a job that a man can do. Period. So that, again, carrying children and giving birth falls on the women for, for that reason. You know, it's traditional for that reason, for a biological reason. But it's important because there aren't people. This is something Joe Rogan says a lot. Like women have all the people. That's right. They create all the people. Without them, there would be no more people. The species would die out. So women are very important for the idea of procreation, carrying the children, giving birth. That's something only they can do. Um, it's kind of a biological division of labor, right? Another thing women do that's equally important to making all of the, the people, they also select the mates that they're going to use to have these new people. And this is something Jordan Peterson talks about a bunch. You cannot undervalue the idea that a woman's choice about who she's going to sleep with and procreate with has an impact on the next generation. Now, I'm, obviously, rape is a thing. And in, in, in the old days, in the ancient, ancient times, it was probably much more normal and, and common, but Putting rape aside in an ordinary situation, tribal situation, a woman is going to choose a mate. Maybe that maybe her family is going to choose that mate for her, something like that. But 
the characteristics of that man that she sleeps with are going to get passed on through through the, their, their genes to the next generation. So if the woman says, I'm going to mate with the best hunter, I'm going to mate with the most kind and compassionate member of the tribe, the person that gives, you know, gives meat to the needy, whatever it is, the person who takes time to teach the children how to you know, hunt or, or track or whatever it is, or trap, you know, the, the man that brings the most value and is the healthiest and can, can protect us the best, you know, they're going to select the values that they want to pass on to the next generation. They're going to find those values the best they can in a man, and then they're going to sleep with that man and have a child. That's the way it works. Women are the mechanism of natural selection in, in human beings. You are the ones that choose whose genes get to pass on to the next generation. And it's your judgment of their value that is the determining factor. That's what's going to make you woo. That's what is going to make you, you know, sexually attracted to a, to, to a man. It's something subconscious that's going on that has to do with your valuation of him. His genes, his, his personality, his disposition. You're going to pick that guy, the one that's the best, as far as you see it. And those are the people who get to spread their genes. How important is that, do you think? I don't know that I could put a high enough value on it, right? If women did nothing but have children with the most intellectual and, um, and the most athletic men, in five or six generations, we'd be a bunch of St- Stephen Hawking supermen. You know, it, that's, that's women's decision, and they have that they have that power barring rape they have that power exclusively that's tremendously important it's it's the future of the human race important right all right the teaching bit i mentioned a bunch but i can't emphasize enough that what women are doing when they're raising children is teaching us the way of life However we've figured out how best to live and to get by, that's what they're teaching to our children. That goes along with oftentimes religion and morality, right from wrong. Um, customs, rituals, holidays, you know, what do we do, you know, at harvest time? What do we do, um, you know, at, at the full moon? What do we do for someone's birthday? What do we do for the high holy days? You know, all of the culture that has to do, you know, that surrounds it. That stuff's all, all being kept alive by the women teaching it to the children. Not exclusively, but by and large. So what the women are actually doing is they're picking and choosing, again, what, what characteristics and qualities that the future generations are going to have. And then once the future generations here, they're taking care of them, nurturing them, and teaching them how to successfully adapt the way that the tribe has learned over however many generations. So the question I have for you is, or maybe the statement I have is that I can scarcely imagine a more significant, necessary, and critical role than, than what we've talked about that, that are traditional women's roles. So why the disrespect? Why did those women in my college classroom feel like I was insulting them by simply proposing that there might be such a thing as traditional gender roles, that they might have a, they might have a purpose, there might be a reason for them, for them having survived all of this time? 
We talked about division of labor and economies of scale and, you know, and the biological differences between people. And that, that explains all you have to, all you have to know about it. What it doesn't explain is why the value judgment on women's roles in the last 50 years have been diminished to the point where these 18-year-old college kids in my class couldn't bear to hear the fact that there might be certain roles and responsibilities that they are better suited to than me. And that, and that the implication being that whatever it is I'm saying that they're best suited for is not as, is not as valuable and, and is not as prestigious as the things that I would consider myself suited for. And that is baby back bullshit. Bullshit. If you believe that all of the shit I just described, all those roles, are less valuable than the, the seemingly more prestigious one of going out and killing a deer and coming back to celebrations from, from, the, from the tribe that we get to eat meat today, right? Or just fast forward to the future and we'll, we'll have the same role as the CEO of the Fortune 500 company that I get to come home with a $100,000 paycheck and everybody's, you know, uh, thrilled that I've provided and I'm a, basically a celebrity. Like that is what the culture is saying to the women is the most valuable and, and telling them that they've been robbed of it. And I'm asking you, is that true? Do you think? Do you think the breadwinner is the most important role in the family? Right? I mean, I don't, I don't mean anything bad. Uh, I know it's a different time. I don't mean anything bad about my own father here, but I want to say he he was a hard worker. And what what that means is he he won the bread. But what it also means is he was he was largely absent, right? He's working 9 to 5, he comes home, he's exhausted. So he's he's what? He's like a machine that makes the money and does the work and his life gets sucked away and he has very little in the way of relationships. You know, not a lot of friends, um, you know, not, not a particularly well-developed relationship with my mother, for, for, for Christ's sake. And, you know, precious little in terms of relationship with, uh, with the rest of the family, even, even, even the children. And I don't know, you know, I don't blame him for that. He took me hunting. He coached my sister and I playing softball when we were young. You know, he played with us. He, he, you know, it's not like he was missing. But what I mean is his, his role was to work and make money. And he worked hard. And he broke his body. And, you know, uh, I could go on, but, but he did what he needed to do. He did whatever he needed to do. And so that's what I learned. You know, one of the most important things I learned from him is that a man does whatever is necessary to do to take care of, of his family. And I believe that, and I, and I follow that. Um, but the question I'm asking here is, if, if you had to compare the value of the breadwinner to the woman in all the ways I just described and ask yourself what was more important to you personally growing up? What was more impactful for you? Um, how, about for the, how about for the family or for the tribe or for the society? Who has been more important and critical? You know, you might even ask something like, and this is probably more true today than ever, but somebody super powerful and high up and prestigious like the president Who's, who's more significant to you, to your life personally, and to society and to the family and all of that? Your grandma or the president? How about grandma 
or every president that's ever lived. Fucking grandma, hands down, every time, grandma, my grandma, your grandma, but my grandma, right? Um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. So what is it about the prestige then that the culture is telling us the presidency is, you know, we got to have to have a woman president, right? Why? Is it better? Is it better? Are the women going to be fulfilled and finally recognize their worth if they sit in that office? I'd rather my fucking grandma sit in that office. She knows what's up. She's been, you know, it's frustrating. All right, let's move on a little bit here. All right, so I got a note here about the importance of women in judging what merits passing along to the next generation and keeping the culture alive and relevant. That's really important, and it has to do with some of what we already talked about, like passing on, you know, deciding whose genes get passed on and what qualities get passed on to the next generation, but also all of that teaching we talked about and what gets taught to the next generation. It's whatever, whatever they think is the most valuable for them, whatever's going to make the, the, uh, the next generation more efficient and better off than they were. That's what every parent wants for their child, to live better than they did. So that's what these women are choosing to pass along. They're making those deter- determinations. They're making those value judgments. The women's value judgments are more important than any other single factor in human society, period far more significant than any decision any president, emperor, or king has ever made. Period. And so, I ask you this. Think about today. Think about your life. Who organizes the holiday parties? Who organizes Christmas dinner? Thanksgiving dinner? Who's doing that? Think about those memories you have of growing up. You know, the presents, the trees, the lights, the food, the family. Who was responsible for coordinating all of that? Who put the, who put the ornaments on the tree? It was fucking mom. It was mom. Every time, it was mom. I'm not saying dad didn't have some role in it, but mostly it was mom. Who breathes excitement and creates anticipation with the children? who are going to grow up and carry on those same traditions? Who put those memories in your mind that you fondly remember about Christmas morning or trick-or-treating on Halloween or Easter baskets or family vacations? Who? Mom. It's the matriarch. See, the man is not... He's busy doing other things. And the the woman has decided, or they mutually decided, that's what the man should be doing. So the woman's taking on a tremendous amount of responsibility. And the man is allowing it, right? This has all been, this has all been determined. These are the roles. This is how it breaks down. The, the man who's supposed to be the prestigious one that everybody wants to be like, he's doing all the cool stuff and getting all the fucking recognition. That guy is saying, look, I'm going to defer to my wife on the value judgments of what the future of, of, human, of, of human society are going to be. I'm going to rely on my wife to choose what genes get, and what qualities get carried on, what skills get taught, what the culture will be like, and instilling that in our children. I, I trust her to do that, and that's what we've said as a species for 100,000 years. So how is it that today women think that it's demeaning? How is it? How have we possibly let that happen? What, 
What motherfucker didn't raise their, their hand and say, what? So pump the brakes. Let's go back here. Let's talk about this. A lot of, a lot of people did. I don't know who's responsible for it. I don't know if it was the feminism or certain parts of feminism or I don't know what it was, but somebody at some point started planting these ideas in our children's minds, in particular our little girls' minds, that the role that they have, which is by far the most significant, not only in their lives and in their family lives, but in the society and in the species as a whole. And we're telling them, you shouldn't want that, and it's not valuable, and you're getting robbed. And they believe it. And I don't know what the consequences are going to be, but you can see what they've been. Um, just take a look. look. Look at the culture today over the last you know, 10, 15 years. It's a catastrophe. Who features most prominently in your memories, your, your most fond memories of the type of stuff that I'm describing? The cultural traditions that we, f- that we find are so important, that we look forward to, that we're excited to see our kids adopting and becoming excited about, like watching your kids opening presents on Christmas morning. Who features most prominently in those memories for you? Is it mom or dad? Mom, right? Grandma, right? The matriarch. See, the women are so important, and the leader of the women, that's who we call the matriarch. In your family, that's grandma or great-grandma. Um, you know, in the, in the tribal society, it's, it's like the elder woman or the elder group of women. The matriarchs are very important, very important for all of those reasons. And what's interesting in my life now is I'm getting to the age. You know, my great-grandparents are long gone. My grandparents are starting to go. Um, are getting close and my parents are getting, are getting older and, uh, it's a strange and surreal thing growing up and, and it, it, it never ceases to surprise you. And so this position I'm in now is surprising. Um, so my, so my dad, for those who don't know, uh, he got very sick and, uh, wasn't, wasn't supposed to even live as long as he's lived. So there was a period of time where I had a strange psychological change where I felt like i I took the position of the patriarch from my father. And, I, and you know, now that I have my own family and house, it's, it's sort of easy to fill that role. And I feel like I've taken over the job. You know, you, you guys have seen those races. I don't know what they're called. Foot races where the guys will run in sequence and they pass the little bar to the, the guy behind them who, who picks up the, the race from him. That's what I feel like has happened. You know, my dad's passed that baton to me and I've grabbed a hold and, and, I, and I'm off and running. And I'm, so I'm dad now, you know, I'm the patriarch and it's weird and you never feel quite ready for it. And, and this is what I'm seeing happen, um, with my mom and my, and my wife and my sister. So my wife and my, my sister have become the matriarchs. They are, they're the, they're the matriarchs now. Um, they're the women that have been around the longest, have learned all of the skills from all of the older women, and they're the ones that are, whose value judgments are, are paving the way for the future of, of the next generation. You know, they're the ones taking care of the kids. They're the ones taking care of the, the elderly members of the family. They're the ones carrying on the traditions and teaching the kids and doing all this invaluable stuff that I don't have the time to do on my own. And I don't have, and, and there is 
some admission here that, that I probably could do more and always feel that way and have guilt about that. And I know my wife does too. And I think all parents do to some degree is always feeling like you could be doing more. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish that. Um, but my sister and my wife do a tremendous amount and it's all the stuff that I was telling you about. It's organizing holidays. It's figuring out what the new pattern is. You know, it's like, it's not grandma's house anymore. It's not mom's house anymore. It's something else. Now we have this new, this new tradition and this new, um, there's a, there's a new place for all the members, right? It's like, you know, grandpa and grandma and, and, you know, they got a different spot at the table now. And, you know, my wife and my sister are, you know, in this matriarchal position and it's, it's strange to see. It's so strange to see. It's like, it impresses me in lots of ways because like, I don't even know where to begin. It's like seeing my wife and my sister become competent in ways that I never imagined. Like, like I don't think there's any one single example that I can bring up that will that will do justice to what I just said. It's not one single example. It's a thousand things. It's a thousand things. It's it's figuring out how to, how to keep the family together, keep, figuring out how to keep keep them from fracturing when kids have you know start having kids of their own and their time gets divided and you know uh, not letting th- not letting everything fall apart. And by everything, I mean all of those memories that you want to recreate for your kids, all of those teaching moments that you that you are waiting to pass on, you know, all of those things, they make sure continue. And and I'm not saying that they're always happy about it. And and, I, and it is, you know, difficult to talk about because I because I feel like, you know, maybe I maybe I should play a larger role in that or I just can't get over the guilt of it or something and I don't know what's what the case might may be in in reality, but it's impressive to see them do all of this stuff that I just simply wouldn't want to do. It seems terrible to me. It seems hard. It seems stressful. And I, I know how important it is. And they just manage it. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's, it's not just the holidays and the family. It's the watching people that used to be strong and powerful f- become frail and 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 this metamorphosis happens this beautiful metamorphosis happens where where that strong powerful spirit that used to be in my in my mother and my grandmother who are now you know older it, it it just transfers to my sister and to my wife and i see it in them that's what I mean when I said, like, the, the, you can see the baton, you know, my dad passing the baton to me and feeling that way. This is what I see in the women in my life now. And it's, it's a tremendous to see, you know, picking up that responsibility and bearing that burden and doing it with a smile on their face for the most part. Um, I just cannot say enough about the image, about how much I respect that how much I respect that. I can't put it into words. You know, anytime you see somebody pick up a load and carry it, there's something noble about that. And the load of, the responsibility for the future, 
that's what that's what the, the load that these women are carrying and it it there's nothing that compares to that okay the next thing i want to talk about in this regard is what happens when the matriarch becomes m- my wife and my sister what happens to grandma what happens to great grandma you know what uh, when i say grandma i mean my mom what hap- what happens to them they used to be the matriarch so what are they now it's tough and if you haven't got there yet in your life it's tougher than you think it is it's tougher than you can imagine because it's it's like what happens is there's a part of your mother or your grandmother that dies that goes away from them it's reborn in the next generation it's reborn in my sister and my wife i can see it in them but it's now gone from my mother and my grandmother and that's hard on them you know it's hard on them not because not because they think that the next generation is not doing as good a job as them or you know it's not like they're being critical it's that they're they've lived their entire adult life being that serving that function and when it when it gets taken from them or when it when they can no longer carry it they, they there's a feeling of emptiness that comes along with it there's a feeling of not not being valuable not not being not be not contributing any longer in a meaningful way and that is a terrible curse and i think that it's a curse of modernity it's not something that used to be the case like i said in a tribal situation the the elder women and the elder men in the tribe they're respected beyond anybody else how is it today do you think the oldest people in your family are they honored and respected above everything else i don't i mean i don't think so i don't think so it used to be we took care of them you know back in the in the stone age example we take care of our, our elders when they can't hunt for themselves anymore we feed them why because they spent their time hunting they fed all of us as kids right we deal with them sort of slowly regressing um, because that's what happens when people get older. They slowly regress back into childhood. They become immature. Their, their, you know, their brains start to you know, decrease. The, the gray matter and white matter decreases in their brain. They become like children again. Next thing you know, they're wearing diapers again. You know what I mean? And in the old days, we, we took care of our elders. Shitty diapers and all. Until, they, until the, their last breath. And we did it as an honor. It was an honor. Why? Because they took care of us when we were in diapers. Because they allowed us to become who we are. Everything we have, they're responsible for in some way. So we take care of them. We honor them. They've seen it all. They, they know all the patterns. They've seen it all. You can ask them questions, they can answer you when nobody else can. Because they've seen it all. That's how valuable they are. And when they were no longer the matriarchs anymore, they became the elders. And they were, they were that much more valuable and precious. So I wonder, my mom, my grandma, are they the honored and respected elders? And our, our culture, just like I was describing in the beginning, with these college kids in class, 18 years old, who can't understand that what they are and what they do is more valuable than they can possibly imagine and should never be, you know, um, they should never turn your nose up to those things. You should be embracing the great power and responsibility that comes along with that. 
or at least you can. So I ask again, the value that we place on our elders, especially the, especially the women, you know, mom and grandma, you know, they seem lost, powerless to contribute. That like, They don't have a valuable place in the family anymore. You know, what am I doing? I'm not raising the kids anymore. I'm not, you know, essential in the way I used to be. And the truth is they should be essential in new and other ways now, the way that their, that their parents were, their grandparents were to them. Like, there's a role for them in the family. There's a role for them in the tribe. There's a role for them in society. And it's the most important role imaginable. But what do we do? All right. So if, as I said, it's our response or evaluation of traditional roles, it's that that's culturally conditioned. It's not the roles themselves. It's our response or the way that we value those roles that is culturally conditioned. That's what changes with culture. That's what was different from 1950 to today, right? So what does this say about the direction uh, our culture has taken? You know, the state of, again, women believing that their traditional roles aren't as valuable or maybe even are despicable or disrespectful or something like that, like the worst possible shit. That's, 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 the, that's the way it seems to me that, that they believe. What does that say? And how about, how about our, our matriarchs, you know? How about our elders, the way we treat them? What is the value we place on our women and our elders or our women's gender roles, let's say, and our elders have to, have to say about us as a, as a culture? I don't think it says anything good. And I don't think anybody's pointing it out. What does it say that we continue to teach our daughters? They must become wealthy and competent all on their own and let the man be damned. What does that say? What does it say that we ship our elders to the nursing home where they're out of sight and out of mind and we pat ourselves on the back that we visited for 20 minutes last Christmas? More scary still, what are we missing by doing this? The wisdom of our ancestors, maybe? The voice of reason that speaks from life experience we've not experienced yet? The voice of those who can see farthest into the future because they've seen it all before? If we succeed in destroying this, then what? That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>